Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basilega, Director of the Clinical Specialists and Scientists section here at ASHP, and thank you for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional program from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. All right, so for those of us who've been around a while, um, over the last 15, 20 years, we've seen um, the, the cancer treatment paradigm go from uh, what I learned as um, cut it, kill it, burn it, uh, to a plethora of options and, and treatments. And some of the other panelists will be touching on some of these topics. Um, I specifically will be uh, mentioning immune modulating therapy, targeted therapies, um, some of our, our newer um, cancer treatments. And the exciting thing about oncology is that there's always more to come. As an oncology pharmacist, we are those um, cancer medication experts. And for many of us, we have patient-facing roles, providing that education and care directly um, to patients and their families. Uh, but there are so many more roles as well developing in the field of oncology pharmacists. Um, and one of those is genomics and precision medicine, um, which I will also talk about. So for our first uh, case study, so to speak, let's combine and conquer. So um, I pulled out an example of, of what newer combination therapies look like today um, in the solid tumor world. So for those of you who practice um, in uh, renal cell carcinoma, um, for advanced disease, there have been multiple new FDA approvals of combination therapies using both immunotherapy and immune modulating agents plus targeted, um, often oral agents. Uh, previously, those might have been given alone and in sequence, uh, but now there are multiple options, um, and they're either or. Um, so how do we pick, what do we do, and how do we manage these side effects? Because there are many overlapping side effects between these two drug classes. And to throw in a ringer, um, if we use steroids for an adverse effect from cancer treatment, that can possibly blunt the immune response if we're giving someone immunotherapy. So in this example, um, what I've done is a kind of a simplified Venn diagram and uh, listed out per drug each side effect. And then in the middle, in that pink circle, you can see the adverse event overlap. So this is a great exercise to do. Uh, the great thing about cancer care is there's always something new. Um, you're getting a novel drug combination. Uh, you know, sometimes these are not being prescribed in the context of a clinical trial. And how do you start to navigate that as the pharmacist and the safety gatekeepers and the patient and uh, caregiver educators? What can you do to have a structured approach? So this is a great exercise, not only for yourself, any students, residents, if, if you come across this. So focusing on that pink circle in the middle, um, how do we navigate knowing which side effects are from which drug, which side effects happen when, and we put on our detective hats because that's what the providers and patients ask us, right? So I did a little bit of a deeper dive on this slide. Um, I call it my chicken or the egg slide, uh, which came first. Um, so pulling out something as a common side effect of anti-cancer therapy is diarrhea. You can see that each of these agents has a very different profile as far as when does it start? What does it look like? And how do we treat it? 
Um, so for oral TKIs, like cabozantinib, um, if we hold therapy and if we use some of those um, typical over-the-counter antidiarrheals, we'll see improvement um, and we can move on from there. Um, Immune-related adverse effects are a whole different ballgame commonly requires steroids, and sometimes people are admitted to the hospital because their diarrhea or colitis is so severe. So this is how you can parse those two drugs apart and really kind of piece together what kind of side effect and what it looks like in matching it to the drug. I have a few other examples there. Um, dermatotoxicity, so rash. Rash is a super common side effect of a lot of the medications that we give. Um, but a TKI rash looks different feels different and can respond differently than um, an immune modulator rash. And also with nephrotoxicity, um, very different mechanisms, and um, I have details outlined in the table there. So this is a good example of figuring out what's the mechanism, what type of effects are you seeing, when are you seeing them, and then what would we, we do to treat them. So my clinical practice gems um, for approaching those combination regimens, really compare and contrast that side effect profile. Look for similarities, those overlapping toxicities, and then what happens, additive toxicities. They could be worse because you're having two of the same side effect at the same time. Um, if there's clinical trial data or primary literature, look back to that to see when did patients start having side effects? How many had to have treatment held? Um, did it have to do with a certain patient characteristic or cycle? And that can help you compare to your patient if they're getting a similar regimen. And then also research the onset and duration of adverse effects. This is one of my key tips for patient um, education. Uh, patients are overwhelmed, and when you give them the whole list of side effects, especially for an immune checkpoint inhibitor, it can be a lot. So what do they need to look for first, and what would that side effect look like, um, and how can we empower them to know when to call and how to treat um, at home if that's appropriate. So these next two slides are uh, a couple of gems for you to take home. I have found them extremely useful in my clinical practice. Uh, before this, we had a similar kinetics of adverse effects diagram from 2008. So this one is much updated. And it gives you an idea graphically, if you're a visual learner like I am, of what side effect is going to happen, how soon, and severity. How high does that curve go? So from looking at this, I know that I'm going to talk to patients about rash and colitis diarrhea for sure during that first uh, patient education session. Maybe some of the other things like a late onset nephritis could wait until a later visit. Uh, this author also has uh, a combination graph. So we're also giving immuno-oncology agents in combination. So PDL1 and PD1 inhibitors plus our CTLA4 active agents like ipilimumab. And as you can see, the toxicity severity curve has spiked way up when you give it in combination and the side effects start happening earlier. This is very helpful when you're talking to your patients and families. So those are some gems for you. Transitioning into oncology precision medicine. So I like to think that in cancer care, we've been practicing this all along. Um, precision medicine is a very big buzzword right now. You see that used applied to all types of healthcare, uh, but basically you are giving patient specific treatment. So in cancer, what that means is that uh, based on the tumor's genetic changes, we would select drugs that target those variants. Um, and what 
we're seeing in clinical practice is that we're moving to what we call a tumor agnostic approach. It doesn't matter where your tumor is anymore. If you have a target and we have a drug that can hit that target, that's what we might prescribe for you. Um, we're looking at a lot of precision medicine approaches in the setting of clinical trials. So you see unique trials such as master protocols, basket trials. And something um, that's relatively newer is the shift away from sequential treatments to more treatments combined together at once. So similar to what we saw with that renal cell carcinoma example, instead of giving an oral agent alone and then maybe an immune modulatory agent alone, we're giving them together up front. And why do we do that? Well, the problem with cancer is that it's tricky. It uh, always figures out a way uh, to continue to progress and grow. So resistance to therapies is why this is uh, a path that's being um, more intensely looked at. So why are we doing this? What's the rationale? And one of the big reasons is that resistance that I mentioned, uh, but as we know, if we inhibit one spot of a pathway that signals for cell growth, uh, the cancer cell figures out a way around that to signal through another pathway or perhaps downstream of that pathway. That's how resistance happens. So if we can block multiple points at once, could that result in a better result? This is also um, another great study pulled from the literature. Um, I very much encourage you to pull um, that renal cell example and also this one. Um, those of you might, who are practicing might recognize a, a RAS, a RAF mutation is very common in GI oncology. And so this is a patient um, who had a RAS alteration in a concomitant CDK and to a B alteration. So when we send genomic sequencing tests, we're not just testing for one gene anymore or one variant. We get the whole kit and caboodle and you get a long list of potential targets and variants. And so in this example, we have a patient with two different genomic alterations that can be treated with two different drugs, a CDK inhibitor and a MAC inhibitor. So my very simplified MAPK pathway on the right that I created myself, um, you can see that RAS signals multiple pathways um, to turn on cell cycle proliferation and growth. And so if we are hitting multiple um, spots in that pathway at once, perhaps there might be a better outcome. So this is an example of precision oncology and combining novel combinations uh, to try and treat a cancer based on what the cancer cell is telling us to use. So as you can imagine, um, as pharmacists, this might make us feel a little nervous. Um, I fully admit I get very anxious when I see some of these drug combinations together. Uh, so really taking a step back and systematically going through uh, how can we review these treatment plans? What combinations might be more uh, toxic then? Uh, another. So do the agents have the same targets? Um, an example would be a VEGF inhibitor. Um, there's extracellular and intracellular um, receptors and signaling, and using two at once could result in an increase or additive side effects. Do the drugs belong to the same class? I think that's very intuitive, but the more drugs you use together that act the same, the more similar side effects you're going to have. And then again, back to that Venn diagram and the overlap, what overlapping toxicities do you have? 
Um, and in my clinical practice, believe it or not, one of the most common is the rash. It affects quality of life. If someone is itching constantly, painful, self-conscious of, of what they look like, um, and I've actually seen a couple of my patients admitted to the hospital for pain and infection control um, with grade three, four rashes. So uh, being aware of those overlapping toxicities and being able to educate patients what to look for and how to treat and when to call is very important. Alrighty, so always consider your patient's individual characteristics. As we know, clinical trials uh, like to include patients with intact organ function and often exclude the elderly pediatrics, and patients with uh, poor performance status. Uh, many times, that is not what our metastatic advanced cancer patients look like. Um, they, they would not be able to be included in a clinical trial, unfortunately. So look at your patient and take into account any of those aberrations. Um, starting doses of unique combinations of medications, like we just talked about, uh, dose reductions are, are prudent and appropriate. Um, in my personal clinical practice, we do start anywhere from 25 to 50% dosing uh, with the agent. And if we're very concerned, we might start one and then later on the next week or in two weeks fold in the other. Some of that is inherent to, um, say, mail order delivery by the specialty pharmacy. We might only have one of the drugs. <laughs> so it happens um, out of practicality, but also it's a great way to eliminate or at least help with our chicken or the egg situation. All right, so to wrap up, um, my key takeaways are many cancer regimens now contain multiple treatment modalities um, with overlapping toxicities um, when given together. I'm not sure why that's capitalized, but it's important. Um, the oncology pharmacist, we play a critical role in monitoring these patients. Um, no matter what area of pharmacy I practiced in, I've always considered myself the safety gatekeeper. Safety is my number one job. And this is a, these are clinical scenarios where it's a challenge and we really need to take that role seriously. And also make our patients feel safe, comfortable, and empowered with knowledge. All right, so my final takeaway practice gems for you all is to really think about developing that stepwise approach to looking at some of these novel combinations. And again, for those of you who are preceptors or um, going through residency, this is a great exercise um, to do um, with, with everyone together. Educate your patients on the increased likelihood of the incidence and severity of adverse effects. This is by no means meant to scare the patient, but it is the reality when we're using novel combinations that um, you know, may or may not have a clinical trial associated with. So uh, teaching them and letting them know when to call uh, helps them. Many of us might have oral anti-cancer programs, and I know that um, it's, it's kind of become a standard to do those weekly phone call check-ins. Uh, for my patients in our precision medicine clinic, I might call them on day three. I might give them a call on Friday before the weekend just to make sure that everything's going okay and that they're taking the prescribed dose. And then monitor your patients very closely. More labs, and we do see patients in our precision medicine clinic weekly, um, as an example for you all. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Dr. Sandra Quayer. I'm gonna talk about immunotherapy, biomarkers, and where are we now? 
So as you just heard, immunotherapy um, is prominent in our management of cancer therapy and is one of our main pillars in treating our cancer patients. You know, I've been working in oncology for close to 19 years now, and immunotherapy back then uh, really consisted of interferon and interleukin-2, and we very rarely used it because of, I see people sh shaking their heads, yeah, because we really rarely used it, and we really primarily use systemic chemotherapy. Well, wow, have the tides have changed. Immunotherapy now, as I said, is a pillar of cancer treatment, and now when we talk about immunotherapy, it really covers a spectrum of different types of immunotherapy that we can offer our cancer patients. We have bispecific monoclonal antibodies that are really are game changers, uh, where it binds to the T cell and binds to the tumor cell. We have the ever popular immune checkpoint inhibitors that do prevent inactivating the T cell, immunomodulators, and CAR T therapy. So these have revolutionized. I, I can't emphasize that enough. When we look at the eligible patients for immune checkpoint inhibitors specifically, about over 40% of patients, about 43 to 45% of our cancer patients in general across solid hematologic malignancies are eligible for immune checkpoint inhibitors. What we've seen with these agents, it's unprecedented and durable responses and improved survival ad, uh, advantages in difficult to treat cancers. So those melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer. When we look at expenditures, uh, and you know, oncology pharmacists, we spend a lot, we like to spend money. We like to spend money. Um, about last year, about $16.2 billion were spent on immune checkpoint inhibitors. That represented close to 30% of our total oncology clinic drug expenditure, and that's only 12 drugs. So, hmm, is there strategies that we should, not only from an economic perspective, but how can we further personalize therapy and predict who is gonna benefit from these immune checkpoint inhibitors? It's a great story. But there's some data out there that also says that only 20% of these patients are having durable responses. It's not all cancers. Um, and so that's where we think biomarkers can help us strategize to personalize the, the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors specifically. When we think about what biomarkers are, biomarkers are genes, they're proteins, they're substances that can be detected in the tissue as well in the blood. Um, and I think if, if for me, and in, in, in clinical practice, when you think about a biomarker, you want a biomarker that you can test in the blood. It's just easier. When you hear tumor tissue, that means that we have to get tumor tissue and we have to get a biopsy, no one likes that. Types of biomarkers do we have? We have predictive, prognostic, and diagnostic. Predictive are biomarkers are gonna, if you have this biomarker, it predicts efficacy. Prognostic biomarkers are if you have this biomarker, it's indicative and independent of treatment and you're gonna have a better survival. And those are the two that I'm primarily gonna talk about this morning. So for immune checkpoint inhibitor biomarkers, we currently have tissue predictive biomarkers, PDL1, tumor mutational burden, and microsatellite instability. So this is a uh, gram, an illustration, to see where these tumor immune checkpoint inhibitors work. This is, they work in the tumor microenvironment. PD-1 is expressed on the T cells, whereas PD-L1 is upregulated up on tumor surfaces. So these are, are places that upregulation of PD-1 and PD-L1 
can be a biomarker for efficacy of these immune checkpoint inhibitors. So PDL protein expression is measured by IHC, immunohistochemistry, and it's the most established uh, biomarker for immune checkpoint response. When we look at this uh, biomarker as an efficacy, there is data to support tumor cell PDL expression with treatment response. However, this is not consistently seen across all tumor types. For example, in non-small cell lung cancer, we have data that greater than 50% PDL expression uh, renders positive, favorable outcomes. But then we have other uh, disease states such as hepatocellular, where we don't even care about PDL expression, but they're still active in that disease state. So as, as a biomarker, you'll see that this is not universally predictive of, of uh, PDL expressions are not universally predictive of efficacy across all tumor types. There's some challenges of this biomarker, and that's going to be kind of the theme to all the biomarkers I present today is there's no perfect biomarker. In terms of uh, one of the challenges is how do we define PDL positivity? Uh, there's variable definitions based on the different studies that have been published. And then measurement of PDL expression. There's also variability across tumor types of how it's measured. Is it measured on the tumor cells? Is it measured on both immune cells and the tumor cells? How are we measuring this and what are we calling positivity? From a pathologist's perspective, uh, lack of harmonization of how they're doing the IHC conditions has also been uh, emerged as a challenge. And then finally, cl clinical sampling bias, how these samples uh, from the tumor are being extracted. When we look at PDL scoring, the IHC scoring you could see here, we have tumor proportion score as well as combined positive score. So tumor proportion score evaluates the percentage of viable tumor cells showing partial or complete staining for PDL expression. So it's only looking at the tumor cell um, uh, staining versus the combined positive score looks at the staining in both the immune cells as well as the tumor cells. So that's going to give you a different score. What I have here, and it's kind of hard to see, um, but this is a patient at our, in our clinical practice where we sent out their uh, tumor tissue for PDL expression. You can see here uh, the vendor we use at University of Illinois is Tempus. The test they used was IHC, which is, um, again, the staining. And they report the tumor proportion score is 90%. The combined positive score of 95%. So when you look at that positivity, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we know that the variability of definition of what is positive um, varies across tumor types. And what Tempest does to help us as clinicians is they include that in their report. You could see for tumor proportion score, what is defined as positive for non-small cell lung cancer is a TPS score greater than 1% or highly positive is greater than 50%. You could see here combined positive score um, is used to, at, for other cancers such as cervical, gastric, head and neck. And again, you could see that how they determine positivity is it varies greater than 10% and say urothelial ca uh, cancer is considered positive versus cervical just greater than 1%. 
Switching gears to TMB, our second tissue a biomarker, tumor mutational burden. Again, the clinical rationale here is that the more mutations the tumor has, the more likely it's gonna be sensitive to our immunotherapy. So when we look at tumor muta uh, mutational testing, historically how it was done was with home exome, whole exome sequencing. So we have whole genome uh, sequencing, which sequences all the genes, we're not doing that. Whole exome sequencing sequences genes that produce proteins, much more selective than whole genome sequencing. Then we have next generation sequencing targeted panels. That's even more selective than home sequencing in, ter in terms of it has more these panels that target these oncogene uh, proteins. And I say this because whole exome sequencing, uh, you'll see that in a lot of the research of how they're determining TMB. Uh, they, this is given to give you a number of variants per megabase. Um, however, this is extremely complex to do. Um, it is very, very expensive, and it takes a very long turnaround time, over two weeks. So this is not something that's practical in, the, in clinical practice to use whole exome sequencing in our clinical practice to get uh, TMB uh, testing results. What we do see in practice is next generation sequencing with targeted panels. Um, so this is again using a predictive approach to remove germline variants. And there's data to support that we're not compromising the results um, and it correlates with home exome sequencing. There is variability with some of these targeted next generation sequencing platforms, depending on what vendors they have. Some panels are over 500, some panels are over 600 uh, genes. So there is some variability there with the platforms. TMB is a predictive uh, is a predictive biomarker independent of PDL1 expression. In terms of definition and, uh, and efficacy, like I said, so this is the number of non-synonymous coding mutations per genomic region analyzed. It's a mouthful. So essentially how the report's gonna come out is number of mutations per megabase. And so this correlates with the number of tumor-specific neoantigens. And what we've seen in terms of efficacy um, I'm not going to go into too many trial data because of time, but increased TMB has demonstrated to be a predictive biomarker for several tumor types, however, not across all. So again, we're seeing a theme here that we cannot apply a universal biomarker with these immune checkpoint inhibitors across all tumor types. They all have different behavior patterns. We think that the tumor microenvironment may influence uh, these biomarkers. What are the challenges with TMB? as a biomarker, well, what's the cutoff with TMB defined? And it's different across different uh, across clinical trials. In some of the checkmate non-small cell lung cancer trials, they used a, a high, they defined high tumor mutational burden as greater than 10. But in colon cancer, it's higher than 52 is a high TMB. So there's different variability of how they're defined across different studies. We still don't know the optimal uh, uh, the optimal cutoff, and we may not know the optimal cutoff across all uh, cancers. It may be um, cancer-specific what the cutoffs are, and I have some data to kind of show that. 
Um, and so this is one study that was published in New England Journal of Medicine that looked at 27 uh, tumor types and looked at uh, tumor mutational burden and if it correlates with overall response rate. And you could see here what the authors concluded is there is a correlation of the higher tumor mutational burden defined in that specific cancer um, does uh, correlate with uh, objective response rate. Well, what about survival? You know, we think survival is a better endpoint than just response rate. Uh, so there was a, a, a nice work that was published in uh, Nature Genetics by a group out of Memorial Sloan Kettering that looked at the relationship between TMB and overall survival in patients that received immune checkpoint inhibitors. Over 1,600 patients were in this uh, analysis. You could see here they included a broad spectrum of cancers and the immune checkpoint uh, drugs that they also included were a combination of CTL4 and PD-1 and monotherapy immune checkpoint inhibitors. You can see here um, some of the confidence intervals do cross one, and sometimes the sample sizes were uh, uh, on the smaller end, but overall what the authors concluded is TMB as a biomarker does in general predict um, overall survival across um, several uh, cancers. So how does this look like in clinical practice in terms of a report? Again, this is a, one of our patients uh, at our institution. Uh, the, the Tempest uses a 648 uh, next generation uh, gene panel. And you could see here that the result for this particular patient showed a TMB of 10.5. Uh, and so for this patient, that is considered uh, a high TMB and pembrolizumab is indicated. So pembrolizumab in February of 2020 was approved for high TMB. And this was based on a response rate, objective response rate about 29% with a, about 57% of patients achieving a durable response of 12 months or more. So that's what the FDA approved it. And in that particular study, um, and they included several, this is a tumor agnostic, as Dr. You know, Carolyn was saying, this is a tumor agnostic uh, study where in order to be in the study, you just had to have high TMB. Um, and this is the, what it was uh, uh, defined as and those were the objective responses and as well as the durability of that response. And so the FDA approved pembrolizumab for high TMB, and in this case being uh, greater than 10 um, megabytes per, or mutations per megabytes. So our third uh, biomarker, mismatch repair microsatellite instability. So there's four mismatch repair genes that have been identified and these are known as deficient MMR. Uh, decreased expression of these uh, mismatch repair genes is associated with um, a higher mutational, uh, higher mutations and, and in efficacy to our checkpoint inhibitors. These genes, it's, you know, DMR is, uh, also goes along with microsatellite instability because if you have a DMMR, the functional consequence of DMMR is that you have microsatellite instability. So what we know with DMMR as a biomarker um, is that this biomarker has demonstrated to be um, predictive as well as prognostic. 
Um, and we've known this for, for uh, even before our immune checkpoint inhibitors were born, we knew this with MSI high and in, in, in colorectal cancer, we know that if those patients, um, colorectal cancer patients are MSI high, that they have better outcomes and, are, and don't even need, for instance, oxaliplatin. You can de-escalate because they have better outcomes versus patients who have uh, microsatellite-stable uh, disease. There was a, a big study, well, not a big study, um, a, a study that was just uh, um, featured, I would say, in ASCO this past year that got a ton of media attention. Um, this was a neoadjuvant uh, study where patients with stage 2, 3 uh, rectal cancer that were MSI high received an immune checkpoint inhibitor in the neoadjuvant setting, and all patients had 100% complete response. Uh, so it got a lot of media attention because it was the first time that we said 100% of patients had a complete response and more, excite, and more excitement had led because these patients were spared surgery and they were spared chemo, radio, uh, chemo radiation. Now this was a small study. I think it, at the time when they presented this result, and it's been published in New England, I think there was like 12 patients, it was a small number of patients. And we don't have long-term overall survival, but it really does delineate um, that just looking at this biomarker and shows you the sensitivity and in this particular subset. In the metastatic setting, we had a, this was probably one of the first, uh, we talked about pembrolizumab being approved in the tumor agnostic for TMB. Well, it was, pembrolizumab was the first agent or the first drug, I want to say in the history of oncology, that had a tumor agnostic approval based on DMMR um, and the microsatellite instability. So again, this is a tumor agnostic study. If you have uh, DMMR or microsatellite instability, um, you, you are eligible to receive um, pembrolizumab. How do we test for a DMMR? It's really three uh, possible testing methods. You could do it by PCR, which is classically how we've been doing it for decades. You can do immune histochemistry uh, as well as next generation sequencing. Uh, you could see here that the sensitivity and the specificity among all these testing methods is, is, is pretty high. Um, so really, you, you know, determining, you know, base, this is something that you could do locally um, in your institution. At our institution, we do send it out. Again, this is another Tempest report of another one of our patients. Um, this uh, Tempest uh, looks at uh, DMMR testing via IHC, so the staining. And you could see that they're looking for the presence or the absence of these four key uh, genes, mismatch repair genes. And you can see here it's an abnormal result because two of these genes are absent. And again, this patient is eligible for um, treatment with monotherapy immune checkpoint inhibitor. So there are some uh, emerging biomarkers in the literature, gene expression profiling, TILs and T receptor, uh, diver T receptor diversity that are emerging in the literature but still have not hit prime time. CATNA is probably the one that I'm most excited about. There was some data this year at ASCO that looked at CTDNA as a biomarker for efficacy and response in immune checkpoint inhibitors, and it, it looks like it, it may be predictive. Um, and CTDNA is nice because this is a blood biomarker that we can test, so it's much more feasible and easy um, to do. And this is something that with, when you look at 
the amount of people that are eligible for immune checkpoint inhibitors and the variability in terms of efficacy, uh, it would, you know, sometimes we treat them in the metastatic setting, we keep treating and treating and treating um, until they have documented radiologic progression, which could be, you know, after four to six cycles. But if we had the CTDNA, we could actually make that decision after eight weeks. And that's what's, you know, exciting uh, about these um, biomarkers. The other thing is what we're seeing is combination of biomarkers, and, and so that's also emerging, is looking at not just one biomarker, but the combination of these biomarkers. So the first, our, my only self-assessment question is, which of the following uh, biomarkers have demonstrated prognostic and predictive value in immunotherapy? TMB, PDL1 expression, MSI high, good job. No one answered, or CTDNA, the answer is MSI high. So some key takeaways, PDL1 is a required biomarker for select cancers. It hasn't demonstrated to be uniformly predictive across all cancer types, so that's one of the limitations. TMB is a predictive biomarker for efficacy. Um, next generation sequencing with targeted panels have, uh, you know, um, are, have similar outcomes as a uh, whole exome sequencing. Um, but again, there's lack of standardization for the TMB across clinical trials. MSI high has demonstrated both predictive and prognostic biomarkers in patients we treated with IO therapy, and there's several immune, uh, emerging biomarkers under an investigation to further predict theirs, because it definitely, you know, the data I presented is nothing has been, uh, there's no perfect biomarker now for these um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, so there's a lot of uh, work being done in this area. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more episodes from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basileka from ASHP Official and thank you for all you do for your patients.